You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The first guy to sail around the world didn't. Perhaps you've heard about Ferdinand Magellan. He navigated his way into the eastern Atlantic in 1519, intending to reach the Spice Islands in the western Pacific. But things just didn't go as planned. Ferdinand left Spain with five ships, and only one made it back. One was abandoned by a crew that was so mad they mutinied. I am so mad I'm out of here. Adios. Five ships, desertion, mutiny, and misadventure befell the expedition even before Magellan found the passage at the bottom of South America that we now know as the Straits of Magellan. And, you know, two years later, only one ship made it back to Spain. More than 90% of the original sailors were killed during the voyage, and that included Magellan, who fell victim to a stupid skirmish with natives in the Philippines. So while we often think of Magellan as the first person to sail around the world, he didn't. Although a handful of his crew did. The heroic age of exploration, it was fraught with disappointment and death, as well as discovery. Little was straightforward and nothing was easy. Now today we're in the midst of another age of exploration, but of space, and a second revelation of new worlds. And one of our modern ships of discovery is NASA's Kepler spacecraft. Its success has been extraordinary. It's found thousands of new planetary candidates around other stars, and it's expanded our horizon in a way that those early explorers did. And now, again, in a sense, like many of them, it may be forced to return to home port. Kepler may be losing its rudder. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science. We'll give you an update on the operational status of the Kepler spacecraft in a moment. But first, how do you find a new planet? I mean, if we were hunting for new continents, well, we would use a wooden ship. And a bunch of smelly, half-drunk sailors. Really? Is that true? Well, I mean, think about it. Who would want to go? I mean, you got cramped quarters, you got miserable food. Of course, you always had scurvy to look forward to. And the guys you'd be sailing with, I mean, they're not the most intellectually challenging bunch. I rumbles in famous favorite, so I hit him, I did. As for instruments, you had a crude compass somewhere, a quadrant, and a guy behind the wheel who claimed to have a knack for dead reckoning. Land ho, I reckon. I'll see a land ho and raise your reckon to a dead reckon. Oh, crap. 
The thing is, though, these explorers of new worlds really were good at what they did, at least those who came back. But we're not looking for a patch of palms in the ocean. We're looking for a planet around another star. Okay, there are three methods that are most often used to look for extrasolar planets, and we'll give you two of them. The third will come later in the program. Dan Cleary is the deputy news editor at the European Office of Science magazine, and he's compiled a gallery of planet hunters for the May 3rd issue of the journal. Most confirmed exoplanets found so far have been discovered using the radial velocity technique, otherwise known as the wobble method. Since planets are so dim and we can't see them directly, what astronomers did first of all was they looked for stars that were wobbling from side to side or towards us and away from us because if a heavy planet, if it's going around uh, the star, its gravity makes the star move slightly. And we can't detect a wobble from side to side, but we can detect the movement of a star away from us and towards us because the Doppler effect shifts the light that's coming from it. So the light is stretched out when it's moving away and compressed slightly when it's moving towards us. So using a spectrometer on a telescope, they can detect these you know, regular changes in the frequency of the light that's coming towards us. And that's how they found the first exoplanets. And they still use that technique today. So, I mean, they're just looking for planets that are in a dance, as it were, with their host stars. And they're just measuring, you know, how quick that dance is, so to speak. Yes, that's right. And by looking at uh, the the amount of wobble that you're getting in the star, you can assess the, the mass of the planet, which is an important thing to know. It's, it allows us to find out whether we're detecting huge exoplanets, and they've found ones that are many times heavier than Jupiter, or something much smaller, though the smaller ones are hard to detect because the wobble is smaller. Could they find an Earth-mass world, you know, a, a twin of our planet, in an orbit uh, around a star like the sun that's, you know, the same as our orbit, a 365-day orbit? Or is that too little a wobble? I think they, they're they getting in that direction. Um, the amount of wobble is tiny for a planet of, uh, of our size. I think an exact copy of ours they can't quite do yet, you know, our-sized Earth around our-sized sun. But they're getting close. So that's the wobble method. And that technique has been used and dominated by instruments at the European Southern Observatory in La Silla, Chile, and at the Keck Telescope in Hawaii. It's also planned for the automated planet finder at the Lick Observatory on Mount Hamilton here in San Jose. The equipment is, in fact, so good, it could find wobbles as small as a meter per second, which is roughly the speed at which you walk. But there's a second popular planet-finding technique, and that is the transit method. It's most famously exploited by NASA's space telescope, Kepler. It's a very simple technique. You look for a star, and you measure how bright it is very accurately. And if a planet moves in front of it during its orbit around the star, it gets very slightly dimmer for a little while while it passes in front and then it moves away again around the sides. So you get the the light curve, as it were, of the star just dips for a little while and then goes up again. And Kepler used this technique very successfully. They had it looking at a particular patch of sky and it kept an eye on about 150,000 stars and it's detected nearly 3,000 that look like they've got exoplanets around them, but they need confirmation using other techniques such as radial velocity. So about 
you know, a couple of hundred of them have been confirmed as exoplanets, but they've still got lots of data that they haven't even gone through yet. So we're expecting many more discoveries from that data. Thanks to Dan Cleary, and we'll hear more from him later. Kepler has been enormously successful. I mean, it's uncovered thousands of potential planets, but a mechanical failure may end this pioneering instrument's ability to collect new data. The telescope was launched in 2009, and it's been staring at about 150,000 stars. It uses what are known as reaction wheels to stabilize its aim, which is accurate to within a millionth of a degree. And now that's the width of a dime at a distance of 400 miles. At launch, the telescope had four reaction wheels, but one failed in 2012, and now a second wheel has failed as well. Charlie Sobeck is the deputy project manager of the Kepler mission at NASA Ames Research Center. Charlie, the uh, reaction wheels on Kepler are giving trouble again. Tell us exactly what these wheels are and why they're necessary. They maintain pointing of the spacecraft. So we had we launched with four reaction wheels. Each one is in a different orientation, and they absorb angular momentum. So they, by spinning up a wheel in one direction, the whole spacecraft tips in a different direction. So by adjusting the speed of these four wheels, we're able to point the spacecraft anywhere in space. Well, they're somewhat analogous to gyroscopes, then? They are very analogous to gyroscopes. They're just a, a different type of, they're a type of gyroscope, if you will. If, if I had one of these things on my desk, how big would this be? Would it be like, the, you know, the caster under my desk chair? Or, or are these big wheels? How, how big are they? Uh, medium size. They'd be about eight inches in diameter, about four or five inches tall. Okay. And these things are spinning fast? They have a top speed of 6,000 RPM. We generally keep them between 1,000 and 2,000 RPM. Okay, and they're just electric motors driving these things? Yep. There are four on Kepler, am I correct? It was launched with four. One of them failed last summer. Um, so we're down to three, and that's what you need. You need three to control the spacecraft in three axes. And then we lost another one a month and a half ago, so we're down to two working wheels. That means we can only control two out of our three axes. What causes them to fail? I mean, it's just a spinning wheel. I've got those on my car. They don't fail that often. They are very simple devices, and so you'd think that they'd last forever. But they're the only moving devices we have on the vehicle. And as everybody knows, a mechanical moving device is a lot less reliable than something that doesn't move. So while these are reliable devices, they can wear out. What happens, at least what we think happened in this case, is we think that the bearing that on the axle on which the wheel spins, uh, that an internal part in that bearing actually failed. It broke. Oh, okay. So this is really a, literally a mechanical failure. Okay. Now, this thing has stopped working, or you've actually shut it down because it was showing signs of distress? We shut it down because it actually stopped working. This particular wheel went to zero speed, and we pushed it as hard as we could with the motor. It wasn't moving. Now, we are going to try some things to try to recover it, but as of a month and a half ago, it was not moving when we pushed it. Okay. So you do need three wheels. You've got to... This one really stopped. The other one was just kind of squeaking or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so how, how do you bring them back to life? I mean, <laughs> you can't send somebody up there with a can of oil. You can't, and you can't fix something that's actually broken. So if you have a part inside that it's actually cracked, it's broken in half, for example, there's no way you're going to fix that. But if it's something which is just sticking and maybe it doesn't have enough lubrication, uh, maybe there's some things we can do by raising the temperature and so forth, by getting more lubrication moved around inside of it. Maybe we can't push it hard enough to make it work again. Okay. Well, I won't ask you to speculate on what you think the chances are that you can bring this back unless you wanted to. But let's consider first the worst case scenario. The wheel doesn't come back. What happens then to Kepler's reconnaissance for uh, Earth-sized worlds and the habitable zone of stars? 
I think it's very unlikely that uh, looking for Earth-sized worlds during a, in the habitable zone of stars is likely to be able to continue uh, with only two wheels. But we are looking to, to see what we could do with two wheels plus the thrusters. So in two axes, we've got great control with the wheels, and then use the thrusters and the solar pressure to give us control in the third axis. And I, I don't think we're going to have a millionth of a degree control, but we could have some, uh, some substantial control that way, and maybe we could do other exciting science. So to badly paraphrase Mark Twain, reports of the death of Kepler may be quite premature. It is premature. Uh, we, we don't know what it will be used for in the future. It's kind of frustrating is that we've got this wonderful telescope with a fantastic set of detectors, and they're all working. It's just that we can't point it where we want it to be right now. So finally, Charlie, then, you, you sound quite upbeat about this. I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be in your position here because, you know, your, your career is dependent on this device up there, and uh, this device is hiccuping. And it's unclear whether you can cure those hiccups or not, but uh, you, you sound pretty upbeat to me. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you have to be upbeat. It doesn't do anything to, it doesn't help anything to be depressed. I don't want to oversell it. I think that it's unlikely, like I say, to, that we're going to regain our, our ability to search for Earth-like planets in the habitable zone about stars. But I think the opportunity to do other interesting science is something that's still very much up in the air. But there are a lot of data in the pipeline already. So even if Kepler can't resume its search for these planets, we will still find more of those planets. Absolutely. So, so far, we've been talking about the spacecraft. When you talk about the Kepler mission rather than the spacecraft, it includes all the data processing and, and, and stuff that we do on the ground. It includes ground-based follow-up observing, things like that. We have a lot of data that we have not had a chance to get into yet. We haven't had a chance to search this data. We are improving our software to search for planets all the time. And every time we do an improvement, we find lots more planets hidden in the data. So the spacecraft has delivered us a large sampling of ore, if you will. And we're going to go through that ore looking for gems. And they are there. We need to find them still. So the mission has a long ways to go. Sounds like the legacy is well established. Charlie Sobeck, thank you so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Charlie Sobeck is the Deputy Project Manager of NASA's Kepler mission at Ames Research Center. Next, a conversation with the astronomer who's discovered more extrasolar planets than anyone as he prepares for life after Kepler. It's Exoplanets on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. 
Jeff Marcy didn't come in first. He discovered the second planet to orbit another normal star. But then he went on to break the planet-finding record. Seventy of the next hundred extrasolar planets were his discovery. And I think of Jeff as the hominid who has found the greatest number of other worlds. This is all particularly remarkable because when Jeff Marcy first approached NASA to ask for funding to look for these planets, they said, well, they said no. Eventually, they did give him money. That's tenacity, folks. He went on to make these extraordinary discoveries by enlisting some of the biggest telescopes around, the Keck Telescope in Hawaii, for example, and he's on the science team of Kepler. And while he's always in pursuit of the next step in one of astronomy's hottest topics, namely exoplanets, Jeff Marcy is still adjusting to the news that Kepler's search may be hobbled. Jeff, I wonder if I could hand you a poem, and you haven't, you're not prepared for this, so you may decline, but I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read this poem that you wrote about Kepler. Okay. Just, it's on that piece of paper there. Shall I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. Kepler was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week, no weekend rest, my moon, my midnight, my talks, my song, I thought Kepler would last forever. I was wrong. Is it difficult to read that just it now? It was. So I know that you're saddened about the setback with Kepler, but why did you turn to poetry to express how you were feeling about this spacecraft? When I learned about the loss of the second reaction wheel for Kepler, I, I didn't think, I just felt, and I felt like it was the loss of a very close family member. And my mind, for some reason, flitted on funerals. And I thought of scenes of funerals that I have been a part of, scenes from movies. And there's a wonderful movie called Four Weddings and a Funeral. And uh, a really great actor uh, gave this eulogy for his lover and that, that was a part of the, the eulogy he gave. And, and so that just came to my mind when I heard about Kepler, and I thought I have to somehow express the loss in the way that makes the most sense to me, which is a loss of uh, something of beauty for humanity that uh, transcends science. And, and for you personally, what you wrote in this um, poem, that Kepler was your working week, your no weekend rest, your noon, your midnight, your talks, your song. I mean, this was your life. This has been yeah. your life. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, this is, has been seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year effort for, for me and for all of the Kepler team members. Uh, many of them worked till 1, 2, 3 a.m. every night, Saturday nights. We know because we email each other when we're stuck at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. And, <clears throat> you know, it takes that, of course. This has been a unique mission to discover the first Earth-sized and maybe Earth-like planets and hopefully come up with an answer about how common our own planet Earth is. Well, I think it's clear what Kepler means to you. Can you say more what Kepler should mean or has meant to all of us, to the world, and to the world of exploration? The discovery of new worlds, of course, is something that is a part of human history. We, we learn in grade school about the search for the new world and the discovery of the new world by Columbus. Of course, we, we learned later that there were some folks already on the, the North American continent but people nonetheless refer to 
the discovery of the new world. And uh, in fact, what we've been doing with Kepler is actually discovering new worlds, worlds that are really worlds, not just continents. And uh, I think in the annals of human history, we are going to see that Kepler sits in a chapter similar to the chapters of the transoceanic voyages of the 15th century and 16th century, and I think it will never really be duplicated. So let's talk a little bit about what Kepler has been able to do, because it's had an extraordinary run. Uh, what was the latest tally, or what's, what is the latest tally of the extrasolar planets that Kepler has found? It's in the thousands now. Yeah, here's the funny thing about Kepler. This is a crazy situation. We've validated about 100 planets now so far. By validated, meaning that Kepler not only identified the planets orbiting these other stars, but we've done follow-up observations from the ground using the Keck telescope in Hawaii, the Kitt Peak telescopes in Arizona, and other telescopes to verify the existence of the planets and their approximate properties. That's great. But the funny thing is that Kepler has actually discovered over 3,000 planets, most of which are not officially validated, but between you and me, 95% of them are real planets. Now, how far away are these planets? I mean, if we could get into a spacecraft and it could travel at light speed or whatever you would need to travel, where would we go to visit some of these planets? This is such a, a sad state of affairs. Almost all of the stars Kepler has been monitoring for planets reside about 1,000 light years away, one to 2,000 light years away. That's so far that even with our fastest spacecraft, like the Voyager spacecraft, you could never you know, pop over to borrow a cup of sugar, assuming you didn't need the sugar for 700,000 years. So it, it's a bit of a problem. These stars are wonderful because they're clumped together in the Milky Way galaxy, allowing the Kepler telescope to study them, but they are so far away that it's difficult for us to imagine sending robotic spacecraft there or even imaging the planets directly with a super-duper space-borne telescope of the next generation. No, Kepler was really a statistical mission to find how common Earths are, and that's great, because now we know when we look up into the night sky at the closest stars, the ones that are a stone's throw away, a few light years, they probably have Earth-like planets too. And so we now know that it's the nearest stars that we should be focusing our attention on. Now, you've changed the parameters a bit, because now you're talking about Earth-like planets, and we were talking about planets in general. Yeah. So what percentage of those 3,000 planets that Kepler has found, or those 100 that have been confirmed, have been Earth-like planets? And what makes a planet an Earth-like planet, and why is that the target? Um, I don't know. Okay, next question. <laughs> well, here's, there are two parts to your question, and they're sort of diametrically opposed. Here's the amazing result from Kepler. It turns out that of the 3,000 planets Kepler has identified, the vast majority of them, 85, 90% of them, are smaller than three times the size of the Earth. So think of our own Earth. You can fly in an airplane around it. Now imagine a planet three times bigger than the Earth, still roughly Earth-sized, a bit bigger. Almost all the planets Kepler has found are smaller than three times the size of the Earth. So this tells us something we didn't know, that the Milky Way galaxy is lousy with uh, smallish, Earth-sized-ish 
planets. The second half of what you asked about is a little more daunting. How many Earth-like planets has Kepler found? You may have noticed in the previous answer I was using the term Earth-sized planets. Earth-like is a term that, frankly, is very difficult to define. What are the properties of our own planet Earth that make it Earth-like? Is it the oceans, the atmosphere, the mountains? Is it the chemical composition of the crust, the convection in the mantle underneath? Is it the subduction of CO2 that allows the carbon dioxide to cycle and thereby serve as a thermostat? What of the many properties of the Earth make it Earth-like? And therefore, what would another Earth-like planet look like? We don't know. But the basics are lukewarm temperatures so that the water, if any, would be in liquid form. And of course, it's liquid water that's the prerequisite for life as we know it. Well, now you're getting to the third part of my question, because the question where you said you had no answer and then you went on to answer it actually had three parts. And the third part was, why is an Earth-like planet the target? And you just used the L word to describe that. So really, the target has been to understand if life is abundant in the universe and could we find it somewhere else? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we'd love to know if there are other critters out there like us. Every astronomer I've ever known grew up watching Star Trek and Star Wars, reading science fiction novels, some combination of those. And we'd love to know if there are kindred spirits out there among the stars. Can you say more about how Kepler has been doing this? And, and you did refer to it earlier, but it's using um, the transit method. And, and all this time, Kepler has been in orbit around our own sun. It's right. not zipping through the galaxy or the solar system. It's, it's staying pretty close to us, but it's using something called the transit method. So it's looking to see when a planet passes in front of its own star as we pass in front of our sun and whether or not the light diminishes. Could you say a little bit more about that? Maybe I've summed it up. The lovely aspect of the Kepler mission is how ridiculously simple the technique is. A five-year-old can understand that if you have a star out there in space and a little planet uh, crosses in front of that star, it will be seen as a black dot crossing the face of the star like a speck of dust crossing in front of a light bulb and the room will dim. In this case, the universe itself will dim a little bit because that planet blocked a little of the starlight. So how do you know that it's a planet and not a moon or spacecraft or a comet or any other kind of solar system body? Well, a great... A galaxy body, I should say. Galaxy. Yeah, I mean, a great question is, how do we know when a star dims that it was a planet? Well, for one thing, a planet orbits a star like clockwork. So if the planet is really the cause of the dimming, you should expect to see it happen again and again and again and again, almost boringly repetitive because planets orbit stars like clocks. Now, if the amount of dimming is too great, like let's say 10% of the light is wiped out, well, no planet can block 10% of a star's light because stars are too big, planets are too small. And if you do see that much dimming, 10%, it must have been another star that blocked the star. In other words, an eclipsing binary system, and we've found thousands of those. Um, there are a few other options, and you named one that is really exciting. What if it was a spacecraft that blocked 
the light from the star. In particular, a huge spacecraft the size of a planet or even bigger, something so large that it would be some kind of high technology construct. Such a, a device would probably be thought of as a Dyson sphere or a portion of a Dyson sphere, some giant construct orbiting a star, dimming the star over and over and over again as if it were a planet, but it was actually made by uh, some intelligent civilization. And we're looking for those, actually. We're looking to see if there are signatures of the dimming that would clue us in that it wasn't just a circular cross-section planet, a spherical planet crossing in front of the star, but instead some kind of an odd shaped object like the space station has odd solar panels and some odd little uh, modules that stick off of it. So maybe if you analyze the Kepler data carefully, you could actually detect technological uh, structures orbiting the star, and we are trying to do so. In fact, I have funding to do it. You have funding to determine whether or not there are spacecraft, alien spacecraft, orbiting other stars somewhere else in the cosmos? That's right. Why isn't that reported often? I haven't heard that. I only hear about the exoplanet. You just asked. If you hadn't asked, you still wouldn't know. <laughs> That's extraordinary. I have, um, I'm very lucky. I asked the Templeton Foundation. It's uh, public knowledge, so this is not being hidden anywhere. You could Google this. I asked the Templeton Foundation for funding to look for Dyson spheres and also to look for um, lasers being emitted by advanced civilizations. So we're looking for both of those. What seems unique about the Kepler mission, at least for you and as a scientist who has been running it, is that you're dealing with the data, you're thinking about the mission in terms of, of science and numbers, but you also have this incredible passion about the larger questions and about the spacecraft and the potential for discovery itself, and you hold both of those in, in balance. Yeah, I think there are, you've touched on something really quite uh, precious and thoughtful. Um, I... I'm really thinking of the Kepler mission and my own research as a, a human activity. We're asking questions that bear on the meaning that we bring to our lives in our lifetimes, in our generation, and what can we accomplish during our generation. And those are human questions in the end, questions of discovery, of uh, bringing humanity uh, forward one leap at a time. Those are sort of emotional questions about the pride we take as a species, the pride we take as a generation. Having said all of that, though, I'm also drawn to the technical challenges. How can we find Earths, and what are the computer algorithms? What is the electronic noise? How do we beat down the fluctuations of the photons coming from the other stars? How do we um, suppress the thermal and mechanical variations of the spacecraft that all thwart our attempts to discover these Earths? And you're right, there's a combination between the two, the human question and then the technological question. And bringing those to, together, I think, is pretty fun. Jeff Marcy, thank you so much for speaking to us. My pleasure. Jeff Marcy is an extrasolar planet hunter extraordinaire at the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, you'll note that he compared Kepler to Columbus in the discovery of the New World. 
Well, this takes us to the seafaring days of yore, otherwise known as your seafaring days. I mean, there are a few parallels between the work of these exoplanet hunters and the historic age of exploration when explorers would boldly go where nobody had ever gone before and sometimes discover new worlds. Beginning with Christopher Columbus's epic voyage of 1492, a single generation of daring seafarers essentially mapped the entire world. Magellan was in there too. And a writer who has chronicled the expeditions of Magellan and of Columbus, Lawrence Burgreen, has also written a book about NASA's search for life beyond Earth. In the Renaissance, the age of discovery, um, various explorers like Columbus and Magellan and many others had very specific goals. Some of them sound wildly impractical and they thought they could get to China easily and things like that. But they actually had a purpose for going, which they were trying to fulfill. Usually, I call it in a shorthand, greed and glory, i.e. they were looking for valuable gold and spices and often to convert peoples they encountered to Christianity. Okay, so they, they had strong motivations, maybe not motivations that everybody considers perfectly honorable, although certainly right. perfectly understandable. But, you know, when it comes to something like looking for planets around other stars, we figure they might be there for a host of mostly yes. scientific reasons. But did either Magellan or Columbus, I mean, did they know something was out there in their minds? Did they have any reason to think there was something out there? Was, uh, you know, they said, look, you know, this might be a shortcut to the other side of the world where there is some money to be made. And, yes. uh, but, they, but it never occurred to them they'd run into a yes. barrier called a continent. Yes. Uh, you know, like us all, um, they, they were locked into their paradigms, just as we see things today through our own paradigms and perhaps we're somewhat better informed by uh, increased knowledge of the past. The idea of looking for things for scientific discovery or pure science, that concept really didn't exist for them. It did exist to a certain extent for the Greeks and Romans uh, many centuries before, but it, it didn't exist in the age of discovery. Well, would either of these gentlemen, I mean Columbus or Magellan, have put the word explorer on their business cards? Card. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, yes, they would have because they felt that they, especially Magellan, that they were going into parts unknown of the world and that they were going into places that were not known, at least to Europe. In an odd way, you know, Columbus was one of the more eccentric uh, uh, explorers who ever was, even though he seems like such a stern archetype to us. And he always felt that he was re-exploring, if you will, lands that had been mentioned in the Bible or had been explored earlier by Marco Polo several centuries earlier and he kept reading Marco Polo's travels um, on his four voyages. So they, they, would have cons they would have called themselves explorers, but they would not have used the term scientist or, or science. Right. That came, that's a more of an 18th century concept. Yeah, well, I don't think the word was even invented until, well, fairly recently anyhow. Yeah. The subtitle of your book on Magellan called Over the Edge of the World, the, the subtitle is Magellan's terrifying circumnavigation of the globe. Uh, you know, well, what was terrifying there? I mean, these guys didn't think they'd really fall off the edge of the planet. Yeah. I mean, what were they terrified yeah. about? Yeah, um, they were terrified of sea monsters and storms and uh, rumored 
floating islands that were magnetic that could pull all the uh, nails and metal fittings off their ships so they'd fall apart at sea and sink. They were terrified of drowning because most of the sailors couldn't swim. They were terrified of cannibals with good reason because they encountered cannibals in many places that they went. So there was a lot for them to be scared of. I mean, imagine setting off with uh, effectively no maps to circumnavigate the globe or even to traverse the Atlantic Ocean and uh, come come back alive. So they were trying to do things that no people had done before that they knew about. That that was terrifying. And your point is very well taken, Seth, that they uh, realized the world was a globe. Um, any sailor who saw the masts of a ship sink below the horizon as it left port realized that the earth was not flat. Okay. So, you know, that's just a popular misconception. Didn't they have a fairly good idea of how big the world was? No, they didn't. At that time, in Europe, the globe was considered to be, well, more or less 18 or 19,000 miles in circumference rather than closer to the actual 25,000. What was the missing piece? The missing piece was the largest body of water on the planet, of course, as the Pacific Ocean. And they didn't realize they had to uh, traverse it. If, if they did, they probably would not have set out on this voyage. And it was uh, Magellan's great and inadvertent discovery of the size and extent and uh, the Pacific that was perhaps his greatest contribution. In fact, that could be said of his entire circumnavigation. What we remember him for is not what he set out to do. And those discoveries that we prize of his were almost entirely accidental. Actually, that brings up the question. Both these guys, Magellan and Columbus, I mean, Magellan didn't even make it back, right? He died in the Philippines. Right, but right, right, right. And, and Columbus, as I recall, ended up in jail. Right. Uh, now, somebody who discovers some new exoplanets, uh, they have somewhat better PR possibilities, don't they? I mean, the public reacts differently today than they did back then. I don't understand why that was. Well, I, th I think at that time there were rival uh, empires that were looking for precious metals like gold or even cowrie shells or uh, spices and discovery of planets tends to be a much more idealistic, uh, pure pursuit and it's, it's a far, far more sophisticated process of detection. NASA is so much more rigorous than anything that Columbus could have imagined in a, in a million years. Well, Larry Berggreen, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Lawrence Berggreen is the author of Columbus, The Four Voyages, and Over the Edge of the World, Magellan's Terrifying Circumnavigation of the Globe, and also Voyage to Mars, NASA's Search for Life Beyond Earth. Coming up, the third most popular way of detecting an extrasolar planet. Remember, we'd only given you two and science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer on why sci-fi has been way ahead of the game in imagining exotic worlds. It's Exoplanets on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. 
Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The search for new cosmic worlds continues, and there are a number of new instruments either coming down the pike or under consideration that will soon join the hunt. Now, earlier in the show, Dan Cleary from the journal Science outlined two methods used in looking for extrasolar planets. There was the wobble method and the transit method. That one's used by Kepler. But there's one more technique that scientists might employ in the next generation of telescopes. Dan, your recent article in Science Magazine listed, I don't know, uh, maybe a dozen different telescopes and approaches to finding planets. It's become big business indeed, and, and quite a far cry from those days when Jeff Marcy who's probably found more planets than anyone, I don't know. Uh, He couldn't even get a $3,000 grant to buy some computers. So it's all become big business. Which of these new approaches, these new instruments, you know, really floats your boat, so to speak? Well, I think direct detection has got to be the most exciting. So actually getting the light from the planet itself which is very, very hard because, you know, they, they're just swamped by the light from the star. But it is possible. And, you know, about a dozen or so have been detected so far, some using the Hubble Space Telescope, some using ground-based telescopes. But, you know, it's not easy. And so they need new instruments before they can do that on a regular basis. And uh, as you say, it is becoming big business. It's one of the you know hottest areas of astronomy. And there are a few new instruments that are going to be coming online soon that are going to allow us to do that more regularly. There's two which hopefully will be ready this year. One um, on the Gemini telescope called the Gemini Planet Imager. And another one called Sphere, which is going to be attached to the European uh, Southern Observatories Telescope, very large telescope in Chile. And so these are very sensitive instruments which have a, a device in it called a coronagraph. And what that does essentially is blocks out the light from the star so that you're able to see the planets around it. Well, we've always kind of assumed that their solar systems would be like our solar system. But that was before we found a lot of planets. How would that statement look today? Yes, I think it was a big surprise when people started looking at these uh, solar systems that they were very different from ours. You know, they found ones where they had very large planets very close in to the star, which is unlike ours, where we only have small rocky planets close to the star. And there are ones with lots of gas giants, others with lots of small rocky planets. There's just a huge variety. And that was a big eye-opener for astronomers, that solar systems could be so different from each other. Dan Clary, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dan Clary is a deputy news editor in the European Office of Science. Of course, there are some who claim they envisioned strange new worlds long before scientific instruments detected them. I'm Robert J. Sawyer, science fiction writer. My latest novel is Red Planet Blues. So how different are the newly discovered exoplanets from those in fiction? Rob, science fiction writers have been telling us about life on other worlds for a long time. I think they started probably with the moon and other worlds in our own solar system. 
but we now know about worlds around other stars, and uh, they're not always like the ones that have appeared in fiction. That's absolutely true. The biggest problem for a science fiction writer or for a scientist like yourself was extrapolating from a sample of one. We knew about a single solar system for the longest time, and we assumed that therefore it must be a typical solar system. And so we imagined uh, a big yellowish star that would have a few rocky planets close in and a few gas giant planets farther out, and we debated back and forth whether there was another planet after the gas giants, that of course being our demoted dearly departed Pluto planet. And that was the error. We assumed that this solar system was typical. When we started finding other solar systems, that is, not just stars, but stars that had planets in attendance to them, we discovered first big gas giant planets with extremely close orbits around their stars. And uh, we have nothing like that in our solar system. You have to go out to Jupiter to get the first gas giant in our solar system. So right off the bat, with our first discoveries, our first confirmed discoveries of extrasolar planets, exoplanets, uh, we had to accept that our solar system quite likely was not typical. Well, can you give me some examples of the kinds of worlds that were constructed by sci-fi writers? We had envisioned planets uh, that took an example of Earth environment and tended to make it pole to pole because that was easy. So Dune was the desert planet the forest moon of Endor in the Star Wars series, uh, the ice planet Hoth in the Star Wars series. These were easy, simplistic examples of what a world might be like if it was kind of sort of like Earth, but a little drier, a little wetter, a little colder, what have you. That's not turning out to be the case. There are strange new worlds out there for us to explore. Uh, there has been a kind of surprising discovery that many of these planets around other stars are in what are called highly elliptical orbits. In other words, they're, they're more like comets, at least in terms of their orbits. So they might be very, very cold during a large part of their year, and then they're very, very hot for a while. I mean, that's kind of unlike what we find in our own solar system. Uh, any takers there? Yeah, you know, even before we discovered these planets, the master in science fiction of the oddball world was a writer and chemist named Hal Clement, pen name for Harry Stubbs. And he envisioned planets that did have incredible eccentricity to their orbits, also had extremely fast rotation rates, which we've also seen in exoplanets. And in books like Mission of Gravity and Ice World, he gave us some taste of this. And these are books that were written uh, in the 1950s. So we were presaging some of this uh, with our most inventive minds. But by and large, we took the easy route of assuming every star would have an Earth in orbit around it. <laughs> oh, well, you know, one kind of planet they are finding, and in great abundance, is called a super-Earth. So that's a planet that's maybe 50%, maybe 100% larger in diameter than the Earth. So, you know, it would take a couple of days to fly around it, as opposed to maybe one day for our own planet. Uh, but there are a lot of these guys. We don't have one in our solar system, but there are a lot of them out there. How about that kind of world? Yeah, and we spend some time in science fiction trying to imagine, of course, what life forms might exist on different kinds of worlds. Uh, if we have a super-Earth, which is Earth-like but heavier, we wouldn't expect the gracile animals of our planet, the whooping cranes, the giraffes. We would look more for things like our Galapagos tortoises and armadillos close to the ground drawn down by the gravity. And yet, who knows? We were so wrong about what solar systems were going to look like. We may very well be wrong about what extraterrestrial life is going to look like, too. Well, I'm going to throw another kind of oddball planet at you. Uh, it turns out that red dwarfs, which are 
stars that are quite a bit dimmer than the sun may have a lot of habitable planets around them, very close in. So these planets are what are called tidally locked. One side is always facing the star. The other side is always facing away from the star. So one side of these worlds would be very, very hot, maybe unbearably hot. The other side might be unbearably cold, but there could be kind of a temperate zone around the ring there. Sounds like ring worlds, but on a planet. That that sounds like a great place to, to set a story. Well, the irony is we wrote a whole bunch of stories like that. Larry Niven wrote a great one, for instance, when we thought that Mercury had those characteristics. We used to think that Mercury's day and year were both 87 or 88 days, Earth days long. And then we discovered there was a two to three resonance between them so that uh, Mercury's day is two thirds of the length of its year. And it doesn't have that tidally locked, really hot side and really cold side. But before we ever found such a planet extrasolary, we did explore that very much in stories about what it would have been like to live in that habitable zone around the, uh, the Terminator between night and dark on such a planet in our own solar system, and that planet used to be called Mercury. So, so you've been there, done that? In a lot of ways we have, yes. We were wrong about Mercury in this solar system, but it's out there in other solar systems. And you may recall that, you know, Spock's homeworld was Vulcan, and you certainly will remember, although the audience might not, that we used to think <laughs> that there was a planet closer to the sun than Mercury, and it had been dubbed Vulcan. Before Einsteinian relativity had given us the answer to why Mercury's orbit wasn't quite what we thought it was, we thought another body was required. And in some of the early writings about Star Trek, Vulcan was envisioned as being this hot desert world closer to our sun than was Mercury. Spock was part of the solar system, not from uh, 61 Eridani, I think is where they say he comes from now. <laughs> He's moved farther away. He it's, does. Gets those frequent flyer miles. <laughs> well, speaking of moving farther away, I mean, uh, recent studies have suggested that when you build a solar system, which happens in the early days of building a star, uh, a lot of the planets that you make actually get kicked out of the nest because of interactions with their uh, planetary buddies. And so there could be, you know, literally hundreds of billions of orphan planets in our galaxy just sort of wandering around in the depths of space not hugging any star um, it sounds like a pretty cold environment but they could keep their heat for a while could could you have some sort of stories there yes in fact one of uh, the classic star trek episodes is set on such a world it's called the squire of gothos and had this foppish um, gentleman who had captured the Enterprise for study who lived on what they called a rogue planet. But they had predicted, even back in the 1960s, that there might be planetary bodies that were detached from stars. And uh, we were writing about it back then. Of course, science fiction, that's what we try to do. We try to be predictive, not reactive to what you guys are coming up with. Well, that was going to be my final question here, because very often people will ask, is science fiction leading the science or is it following the science? I, I've thrown out a bunch of new kinds of worlds, at least from an astronomical perspective. There are new kinds of worlds that we're finding. And it turns out somebody has written stories about all of these. So as a science fiction writer, would you say, hey, look, we're ahead of the science? Or do you think that you're still uh, or ever following the science? I've always thought of it as a synergistic relationship. We were the ones who dreamed up the notion that there might be other planets in other solar systems that had life on it long before there was any science to determine. We didn't have any of these newfangled techniques for determining whether other stars had planets. So science fiction writers said, hey, 
what if the scientists went out and said, hey, you're right, there is, and we had said, well, this is what some of the scenarios might be like for life. And right now, we're the ones who are doing real scenarios of what life on alien worlds might be like. That's always been the purview of science fiction, and we're hoping that you science fact guys will catch up soon enough and show us strange new worlds with new life and new civilizations. You guys are the pathfinders for extraterrestrial life. Rob Sawyer, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you. Robert J. Sawyer is a Hugo Award-winning author. His most recent book, Red Planet Blues. Well, the search for new worlds goes on in imaginations and in reality, even if Kepler's eye on the sky is becoming a bit unsteady. Well, Sawyer and those other science fiction writers are going to have plenty of inspiration, even if that's the case, because there are two years' worth of data in the Kepler pipeline, so they're going to find thousands more planetary candidates. He'll, he'll have to keep up. Well, that's it for our show. I, I'll take it from here. I'm sorry, and you are? Impressive parrot. I'm Captain Von Trappenhoff. So are you pirating our show? <laughs> uh, this show is undoubtedly adrift under your command. But no fear, I will guide it safely home. I will see that she is brought to port smoothly and on time. I never read about any Van Troppenhoff in the history books. Uh, you, sir, are backwinded. Now step aside. Mm. All right. Man the ports. A reminder that we would be aground without the support of Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Well, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. I must insist that you stand down, sir. Oh, sorry. I, I mean, I, I... And a hearty handshake to our listeners. Your ears have been festooned with the delights of XO planets. There is more Big Picture Science on the web, whatever that is, now, you sailor, mind the block and tackle. Um, well, uh... Never mind. You, secure the boom so that I... Got it. I've already set the spinnaker, adjusted the boom vang, and I've raised the spar with the halyard. Okay. We'll soon be planning. Indeed. And as we sail gently to the end of this program, and you find yourself yearning for the days of over-the-air radio, because it keeps the wind in your sails, we shan't strap you to the mizzenmast and lash your backside should you choose to let your local station know you like the program. There she is! Land ho! The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.